Hey, thanks for joining the podcast. I'm so happy that you are here with us today. I did something a little different. I thought of it right in the middle of this summit, but I recorded a leap year look at climate change that was hosted at the Sarasota Institute um, by co-founder David Houle. There was a lot of great information, too important when we're talking about climate change, not to record it. So I did. It's not perfect. You'll hear even my mom chatting in the background a little bit with her beautiful Irish brogue. And here it is. You know, I, I think that it's great that they provided the live stream as well, which I have included in the show notes. But it's too important not to be up there. Um, Tim Rummage's presentation was incredible, and that's what started the day. So I would highly recommend you watch him on the live stream. Um, we got David Hool in there. Um, we have, uh, my goodness, we have so many. We have Mike Shatskin, hilarious, um, and very serious talk, but really he's hilarious to me because he's from New York and he was such a straight shooter. I loved it. He did a keynote um, putting a price on carbon, which we loved. Sid Kitson, incredible place here in Florida that I want to move to. You're going to have to listen to that. Um, and Ashley Hollern, holy so right about bringing climate change into the classroom. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you look at the notes and click on the link. Don't miss the next summit. Um, it's all about the digital health age and I'm learning so much and I'm doing my best every day, not to save the planet, but to save my me from myself. Right, David? That's what we've been taught. So a little bit better every day. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. Hold it. I snuck in another one. Christopher Tucker, chairman of the American Geographical Society. He did a keynote on a planet of three billion, which is also his book. Whoa. Check him out. He's the last one on the list, but certainly one of the best. The first thing we have to do is what we all know we have to do. We have to eliminate fossil fuels ASAP. And you've seen this morning that no matter how much we talk or this, they keep going up. They keep going up, right? So people say, oh, we need to get off the fossil fuels and everything's fine. But no, the second thing is we have to draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. I'll show you a chart. The increase in the resident CO2, as Harold said, when CO2 goes up into the atmosphere, it's up there for centuries and millennia. So we're adding more, and it just it is that. The time congruency between the warming of the planet and the increase in resonance CO2 in the atmosphere is completely time congruent. It is warming because what is already up there. And most people think, oh, we just need to get off the fossil fuel. No, we need to get off the fossil fuels and we need to draw down all the carbon we've put up there. And the third thing is the crew consciousness. Because we can't operate without acting as crew. There are no passengers in spaceships. We are all crew. So those three things. This is the same chart that Tim had, and I'm putting it up here because I love being the target for climate change. Okay? Oh, well, it's cyclical. Everything's cyclical. Yeah, until we came along, right? By the way, have we made a climate change denier? Here's what you say. You say to them, sir, you believe in it? By the way, I'll go on the record. I've never met a climate change denier who wasn't an aging white male Republican. Okay? Oh. So, so the point is, 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 is seriously, 
And I'm inside. Sir, if you believe it, how are you infusing your actions with your belief? I believe in climate change. I drive a high mileage, high miles per gallon car. I recycle. I do this. What do you do? They can never answer. So they just want to be obstructive. And I love climbing out in front of a lot of people. Anybody here want to take the challenge right now? Right? <laughs> so, so that's the point. You served this this morning. I can skip through this. This is the Earth Overshoot Day. I want to touch on it again because Tim really introduced me to this. Overshoot, the ideal Earth Overshoot Day is midnight, 1231. In other words, we're going through the whole year without stressing the planet or planet down its ability to, to regenerate what we've done. So we have 50 years. And, and, and it keeps going. And this is the inverse of Tim's chart. But just think about it. August 1st, no, it's actually, it's going to be like July 26th, July 27th this year. That means after that date, we are taking more from the planet than it can regenerate. And we've been doing this for 50 years. So we're in a huge deficit. This goes to the part of my presentation about consumption. This is the resident CO2, and if you look at it, the Earth started to warm measurably between 1970 and 1980, which is the same time we went we went from, from 830 gigatons of, that, of, of CO2 in the atmosphere in 1980 to 1,300 now. And that's what that upward thing is. So we, that's when the Earth is warmed. This is an average mean of the temperature. And remember, I want to point out what Tim said, which is we, we lived and evolved in a tight range. We say, well, it's only going up at one degree. No, it's, if it goes beyond one degree, it's, there's no history for humans operating at this high level of, of, of heat. So we've long left the time of denial. We're now in the time of disconnection. That's why I did this exercise. Part of the problem is people who have been green for a long time spent all their time arguing against deniers, arguing against fossil fuels. So sometimes you can argue and we're green and you're not. And part of the problem is this kind of self-righteousness of green people who have been fighting the fight song, but you still went out and bought new clothes, right? You still bought an SUV. So the point is, we're in disconnection with what's going on. So. I really believe this now. In the last four months, I've come around to this. The stark reality is that sometime in the next 20 to 30 years, there might probably be a tipping point, planetary tipping point, but the planet will start a massive warming process that will last for centuries. We cannot plan for 2050. We can't, we can't wait for 2050 because of this acceleration. In the year 2000, oh, by 2100, we have to get off fossil fuels. By 2010, we have to get off of fossil fuels by 2050. And I'm here to tell you, it has to be by 2030. We have to go from 70% fossil fuels to 30% fossil fuels globally. Finally, there's the economy. So everybody in this room has grown up in a growth economy. Growth economies are linear, right? You, you, you produce, you manufacture, you distribute, you sell, you buy, you use, you discard, repeat. There's no circular. So, so there's nobody in this room that is measured by how happy you are, how smart you are, how well educated. It's just you're, you're only measured by how much you consume. GDP is just basically about consumption. So it's all about me, right? The circular economy, reduce, reuse, recycle, sorry, 1970, was mostly about me, but a little bit of us. 
I'll buy some recycled stuff, okay? The problem with that, we did the first research about I did in the book, was 15 years, the news recycle, 1970 to now, it's only 9% of the global GDP. So circular economy is nice, but still books being written, we need to be in the circular economy. Too late, it's too late. 50 years, it's only 9% of the global GDP. So we have to move to a finite Earth economy. You can't have unlimited growth on a finite planet. So that's conscious non-consumption. Conscious non-consumption. Does anybody not have enough clothes? Raise your hand if you don't have enough clothes, right? You don't have enough clothes. Okay, well, so you're fashion now. You gotta buy more because you want fashion, right? There's no reason. There's no reason to buy a second car. I've never bought a new car in my life. Why? The minute you drive it off, of course, it's depreciated, but you're taking something out of the planet. If you buy something used, it's already been taken out of the planet. You're not going into this deficit anymore. So conscious non-consumption. So this is where I'm trying to get, make the point. Think of yourself, how green do you think you are? And how ready are you to consciously not consume? That's a path. I always hear, well, what about China? What, what are we doing, they know? This is the per capita consumption. If everybody lived like Americans in the world, we'd have to have five worlds to support us because we have a higher consumption. China is at one Earth. So this happened because post-World War II, I was in the media, post-World War II, remember we were fighting the, the, the Soviets. So we had to show that consumption, the American way of life was really better. Buy a car, get a second car, get a washing machine. And then of course we won, and by then everybody else in the world, because we sold the concept of the American way of life so much, they said, we want what you want. And I go, well now we learned about, you know, climate stuff, you can't have it. That's the social and the, the climate justice I'll address. But I just want to put this up here. We have to lead because we created the problem. There's been more wealth created since 1900 than all the time before. All the pharaohs, all King Tut, all that stuff. More wealth has been created since 1900 than, than historical prior to that. And that's consumption. Population. You're going to hear a great presentation that's going to end this this afternoon for getting Chris Tucker about how we need to get down to 3 billion people. I'll let him make that presentation. But we basically overpopulated the planet. So what can we do to reduce emissions? Look at this. Okay? I ask people, what is the single greatest act you can take or not take for carbon emissions? Oh, get an EV? Bike? No, have a child. The average American puts up 16 tons of CO2, 16 tons, right, um, in the atmosphere every year. The average globally is four. And yet if you have a child, you're putting up 52 tons because then it gets measured over your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So by the time you're your great-great-grandchildren, you're down to 2.5 tons. So not only is overpopulation part of the problem, we have a choice. As Tim Slide said, there are high school kids saying, I'm not going to die from old age, I'm going to die from, from, from uh, climate change. So we know that there's going to be killing going on for food and water and land if this goes on unabated. So why not plan for it? Right? And, and Drawdown said, it is number one and two, 
really, on how to get, um, how do you cut down population by educating women. Okay, quick thing, women, women only, women only. Raise your hand, women only, if you think that if women completely control all decisions about childbearing, there'd be fewer children. There you go, right? So it's, it's empowering, part of climate change is empowering women, completely, because of this. I mean, there are, there are numerous millennial uh, couples I've met that have said, um, we're seriously thinking about having children, because how, how can we afford to bring a, a child into an overstressed planet? This is the problem. It's obviously the quote of all time from Machiavelli. This is the fundamental philosophical problem we have. We just have to start doing the new thing, forgetting the old thing. So there's only one path. Catastrophic, we need to move rate by 2100. That was thrown out 10 years ago based on feedback from the planet. Risky, aiming for 2050. And the only best problem was moving to a finite earth economy by 2030. Now, are we going to do that? I don't think so. When I was writing this book with Bob, two or three times we had a heart to heart. Like, is it even worth it to write this book? Because things are so much worse than we even thought possible. We said, no, we've got to lay it up. And my commitment to myself as a futurist is I've got to be right about the future, otherwise I have no value. So this presentation is the right path. And we wrote in the book exactly year by year how a country should do it, how, how, how to get it done. Whether anybody follows it or not, at least it's out there. And that's what I'm doing, right? 2030, it has to be by 2030. When Tim and I said by 2030 and 2015, we're ready to October 2018, IPC said by 2030. Because of this feedback loop that everything is accelerating. By 2030, folks. With all due respect to, to, to the Sierra Club, I mean, they were getting people like Tom to sign and say, we're going to be 100% green by 2050. My comment always is, it's real easy to pass the bill. You're going to be dead to have to deliver on, right? I mean, by 2050? Oh, I'll pass it in 2015? And that's just green self-righteousness, for lack of a better phrase. So urgency, urgency, urgency. Okay, so here's the way for climate justice. 80% of all the energy in the world is consumed by the top 20 GDPs. 80%. So if you take the top 20 GDPs and have them move to a finite earth economy, going from 70% fossil fuels down to 30% fossil fuels by 2030, the other 175 countries, the poor countries, don't have to do a thing. That's why the Paris Accord is a total failure. And any of these presidents that want to join the Paris Accord, it's already failed, right? They wanted 1.5 by 2040, we're gonna be at 1.5 by 2025. So it's, it's incumbent on the top 20 GDPs to take the lead, and nobody else will have to do anything. The developed countries won't have to do anything. And the problem is, is that not one of the 20 GDP, top 20 GDPs that signed the Paris has even remotely come close to their commitments. This is, this is kind of, this is the uh, image of, this is the percent that goes up into the world, right? China's putting up more now because there's more people, it's the less few. So if you just take the, if you just take 
um, again, the types, I mean, the types in. This is an interesting thing. Um, Notice at the bottom how China's come up, but because the EU's been around the longest, they've put up the most amount, just because they're in the industrial age the longest. But this is where it's moving to the right, and all the others. So if just China, US, Euro, India, Russia, and Japan changed to a finance economy, none of the rest of the world would have to. This is the disparity on just think about it. You put up 50, this is old, you put up 60, each one of you, if you're an average American, put up 16 tons of carbon every year. Did you know that you have a, a, a quarter pound hamburger in a restaurant? That's six pounds of CO2. You have a six ounce filet of fish? That's four pounds of CO2. You buy a t-shirt? That's two pounds of CO2. Because we're disconnected. It's not just out of the tailpipes. But, but look at this. So you, you notice that the average of the world, I'm not sure if the pointer here, the average of the world is 4.35, and the developed countries is 9.02, and we are at uh, United States, Canada, we're up now 16. So keep that in mind. Four globally, 16 US. Greenhouse effects, we, you, you've seen this this morning, I'll leave it up for a minute. So transportation is such a small part of it. So urgency, absolutely. Sources of clean energy. Right now, this is the hierarchy of sources of clean energy in the global economy. Hydroelectric is number one. Nuclear is number two. Wind is number three. Solar is number four. Fusion and others, maybe, maybe not at the bottom. Okay. So. If you look at this, so coal, oil, gas. I hate natural gas saying they're clean energy, right? So you take them out, look at the, if you look at the 2018, look what happened to nuclear. Because the nuclear fear went from 17% down to 10%. Hydro is at 16%. So hydro is number one, clean. Nuclear is two. Biomass is third. It's going to be wind is third, biomass is fourth, but solar is at 2%, right? So there's an illusion that wind and solar will get us there. It'll get us there maybe by 2050. We're going to have an energy conversation at the end of the day. Um, so technologies, additive manufacturing is a game changer. Not only will it allow us to land on Mars by early 2030s and have a colony, but it will reduce the use of concrete, it will reduce the use of supply chain. Because you'll be able to, to I've, I've been in, I've been in a, uh, in a room that man, you go in, you get the design, the car made, computer animated design. It's made out of graphite. You bring in the drivetrain and the tires, and you come back in three weeks and you pick up the car. And I grew up in Chicago, where the stuff got sent to Gary to be made into steel, and then it got shipped to Detroit, got made into cars, and then the cars were shipped to dealerships all around the country. You know, instead, just going to one place and no carbon. No transportation, no supply chain. So additive manufacturing is a transformative technology. Automation. Automation is always more efficient. Big data and data analysis. I would say we're in the third stage of human mapping. The first was to map the continents. The second was to map how to sail around them or cross them over. The third is big data, which is real time uh, anthropology and sociology. So when the CEO says to me, I know what happened last month in my business, I said, what about last night? So we have data, we have sensors we can deploy all around the world to be smarter 
about climate change. Blockchain, won't go into that too much, but blockchain is, is, has a transformative effect, assuming they soon uh, solve the energy problem that it now has. But the, the idea is that this will be a game changer for the internet and for financial transactions. Satellite energy, right? We, we, we by, 20, by the end of 2021, there will be a satellite up there. So the nightly news is today, the United States put up this many tons of carbon. We'll be able to measure it on a daily basis. We have the capability, make it part of the nightly news, an emissions report. So the technology is gonna be there to measure emissions, certainly globally by 2022. Sensors everywhere. So, so we, can, we can see all this happening in the flow. That's how we got alerted to the fact that the ice was melting faster than was talking about. Because there were sensors that were, that were like, what? The temperature shouldn't be this way. And sharing all, sharing of technologies uh, across the board and opening up. Remember, sustainability is a meaningless word unless you talk about it at the global level. So the only way to be global is to share. So carbon, drawdown carbon capture, sequestration. One of the things about sequestration we wrote in our book, um, how do you take the bad guys and make them the good guys? So carbon sequestration is taking carbon and burying deep under earth. Well, who has the technology and the already paid for infrastructure to do that? Oil and gas companies. So why not take the, uh, so why not take the oil and gas companies and create a carbon market so they will get paid to, to sequester carbon. In other words, take the economy, turn it upside down to face carbon. Direct air capture, I'm gonna move quickly through this, but, but I wanna to get to this point. This is a great book. Wasteful consumerism is a contemporary evil. We need to get back to economic plan, simple and useful. And the great singer-songwriter, think about R.E. If it can't be reused, reused, repaired, rebuilt, refurbished, re sold, refinished, resold, resold, deposited, it should be restricted, redesigned, or removed. <laughs> simple. It's simple, right? What you have to think about is are you ready to do it? We stand at the threshold. Key questions there are those posed by the intersection of design and life itself. We've done, I've mentioned this in the panel. Um, Wealth inequality, climate change, democracy, capitalism, it's all redesigned. Tim and I wrote this in our book. So agriculture, permaculture, lab vertical gardens. We need to do all this. We know it. That's what Tim was saying. We know it. Or was it you? Or, or, yeah. We know how to do it, so why aren't we doing it? What are the other guys supposed to do it? EVs, autos, autonomous. Autonomous automobile, since I've been a futurist who's a green person, I've always sat on these conversations about what's 21st century green infrastructure for transportation. And it's just flipped. We have the infrastructure for 21st century transportation in the United States. It's called the interstate highway system, but we have the number of cars because they'll all be autonomous. So we look at the infrastructure rather than the mode, the individual mode. So autonomous vehicles, the average American uses their car 4% of the time. If you would ask a businessman, would you make your second biggest capital investment to something you use only 4% of the time? Of course you wouldn't. We've all consumed and we have to have cars, right? The, green, the, the greenest per car per capita city in the United States is what? Anybody, quickly. 
Now, New York, they don't have cars. Electric air travel, by the way, by 2022, there's somebody who's flying electric planes now. They're, they're float planes, seaplanes, from Vancouver to Vancouver Island to Seattle. It's got a 200 mile range. It's supposed to be a 500 mile range by 2022, 2023, which is 60% of all the flights in the United States of America. The question is, the, can the airline industry retrofit in enough time? I mean, will Boeing still be in business? <laughs> We're not going to be able to operate our space. I'll just let you read these. The key thing is the middle one. I use that every single presentation. The illiterate of the 21st century. Toffler said this about education. Not be to learn. Those who read cannot read or write. Those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. The key verb for the 2020s is relearning. We have to relearn everything. So, what's this quick map of? Trick question, obviously. What's this map? Somebody's gonna answer. The world, right? No, it's not. This is a map of the world. That's a map of nation states. Until we get out of nation stateness, we can't solve a global problem. Right? Think of it that way, right? <laughs> Strategic retreat. The strategic retreat. Between now and 2030, it's estimated low of 30 to high of 100 million people climate refugees. 500 million by 2050. So these are the historical, you add them all up, these are the greatest historically documented historical migrations in human history. You add them all up and you get to the mid-range of what's going to happen between now and 2030. Where are the people, where are the 4 billion people in Miami going to live in 2040? Are we planning for that? So you've seen this. I'm, I'm all the way in the catastrophic. Anybody who's not looking at catastrophic, and that's, that's the low range of catastrophic that you heard here, so I'll move past that. So these are the countries and the amount of population exposed. It's a staggering number. Most of it's Asia and South Asia. So you saw that population. This is an interesting chart, it's a population thing. You always see the thing on the right, you don't see the thing on the left. They're completely overlapped. More carbon, more people, more carbon, more people, more carbon. Consume, consume, consume. So what do you do? Nation states, Tesco based on CO2, not income. Four, remember, four, four uh, tons average around the world. And we're at 16. So let's start taxing at ton five. $100 for ton five, $200 for ton. So by the time you get to 16, the average, we did the quick math, you're going to generate more revenue to the United States Treasury by taxing carbon emissions. And it's more egalitarian. If you're rich, you have multiple homes, you have multiple cars, you may have a jet. You're going to pay a lot more. So what's that going to do if you have a tax code based on emissions? It's going to change subsidy. We, we need to change, but the state of the tax carbon emissions from our, the, the carbon emissions is such that, that, that um, time's up. Okay, so I'll go through this real quickly. <laughs> I go to the National Service. We need a conservation crew, a cleanup crew, a carbon offset crew, an energy efficiency crew. You know, conserve what we got, clean up what we messed up, uh, develop carbon offsets, and, and, and retrofit all the install base of buildings. 
So states and provinces lead by example. Transportation, you heard it up here, make it all EVs. Highway line usage. By 2025, the left lane is for EVs with two people in it. The next left lane by 2025 is for EVs, and the right lane is ICE, internal combustion engine cars, right? And let them know. Taxes, trees, part of your, you know, part of your taxes will go to trees and agriculture. That's the state. The cities is pretty easy. It's zoning, transportation, support neighborhoods taxes and deductions. In other words, if you go to a carbon-based tax system, everybody wants to reduce their taxes, so go buy an EV, although invest in a carbon offset, although invest in uh, uh, an atmospheric carbon uh, cleansing technology. So we'll flip it if we just change the taxes, right? Um, Tom Marlin said, Surgeon General, Surgeon General report, smoking will kill you, 1964. Nothing happened until advertising on television went off in 1971, and we started to tax it. Seatbelts, we all knew seatbelts would lower, would lower fatalities, but the problem was, it wasn't until it was the law that it happened. So it's just a matter of making it all about carbon tax. If we want to stop carbon, we tax it. If we want to stop cigarettes, we tax it. Hmm. So urgency, urgency, urgency. I love this bottom quote. How did you go bankrupt? <laughs> Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Very <laughs> suddenly. That's great. So summary. And that's basically it. Thank you. <laughs> you have certainty about the price. You know how much you're adding to the cost of the fossil fuel. But you don't know exactly how much that's going to reduce the emissions. So the advantage to capital trade is you're after the right objective, which is controlling the emissions. The advantage of taxing fossil fuels instead is it's clearer. It's easier to understand. The question is, now, taxing the fossil fuels based on emissions is because we know how much CO2 will come from a certain amount of coal or a certain amount of oil or a certain amount of gas. So we tax based on the CO2 that we're going to, that's going to be emitted by that volume of, of fossil fuels. You try to capture that money when the fossil fuel enters the economy. So that could be at the wellhead, it could be at the port, it could be at the mine. There are other, there are some plans for this, but instead through the taxing and wholesale channels. The main point is, however you apply the tax or the fee, you have raised the price of the fossil fuel and you've therefore incented someone to use something else to get their energy. Now, these are the trade-offs when you choose. As I was saying, capital trade requires, it provides greater emission certainty, which is desirable, and unpredictable pricing, which is not desirable. Carbon taxing provides predictable pricing, but you don't know exactly what the results will be. But the big problem with capital trade is it's a lot more complicated to administer because you have a multi-step process by which you decide how much CO2 you're allowing, and then you translate that into how many permits you'll have, and then you have people applying for the permits, and that's the only way you determine the price. And that's made me come down on the side of taxing carbon rather than cap and trade, although I'm actually rid of the CO2. I'm, I'm willing to accept a lot of compromise. Um, how are the prices calculated? Okay, the way these things are expressed is in dollars per ton 
of CO2 that's produced by the fuel. Coal pollutes the most, oil produces less than coal, and gas is controversial because there is um, methane, which is, is pound for pound worse than CO2 for a shorter period of time, which is released when gas is fracked and mined. And one of the, one of the problems at the moment is that people who are concerned about the impacts of fracking have taken the position of banning fracking. The thing we need to do is measure the amount of methane that is being released. This is not being reported to us. We really have no idea what it is. And there are no incentives for the oil companies or the fracking to reduce the methane that, that results from their getting the gas. And part of the problem is that allies, people who should be on our side managing the methane, are so busy opposing gas that they're not participating in the real solvable problem, which is to control it much more effectively than we do. But in fact, the U.S. has reduced its carbon footprint as we measure it because of the substitution of gas for coal. That is real, that's been the story of the last 10 years, and it's a story which is elided a lot in the conversation. So the big question, if you do this, I mean, a lot of people are in favor of taxing fossil fuels. There's a lot of people who understand the concept of the economic externalities. The fossil fuels are creating costs, and we're not paying, we're not accounting for that cost. But then if you tax the fossil fuels, or if you sell licenses, either way, what do you do with the money? Well, there are roughly four things that are uh, competing for the use of the money. Climate justice. Climate justice is basically the concept that the poorest people pay the highest price for the damage that we're doing to the economy. Um, the poorest people live in the most polluted neighborhoods. They breathe the most polluted air. And so there's a substantial constituency that says that the money that we collect from doing this should be addressed to alleviating climate justice. The second place that people want to spend the money is on building up renewables. You tax the carbon and you buy windmills with it. That seems like a very logical solution. The third way of dealing with it is what's called tax swaps. And tax swaps are, we've taxed the carbon, but because we've taxed the carbon, we can cut income taxes, or we can cut property taxes, or we can cut some other kind of taxes. And the fourth way, which is the way I like it, is dividends. And the concept of dividends is that you take the money that you get from carbon taxing, and you give it back to people in equal shares. And that way, people are getting a regular check that reminds them that carbon is being taxed. And they can avoid contributing to the pot that gave them that check if they don't buy fossil fuels. So on the one hand, you discourage people from buying them. And on the other hand, you compensate people for the tax. Um, now, I'll get back to the advantages of that later in this piece, but there's another, there's another aspect of this which David touched on very brief, briefly when he mentioned the concept of drawdown. The problem, as has been elaborated by several speakers here, is we're already past the danger point. I, I don't know how many of you know, uh, you know an organization I think called 350.org? This is where 350.org got its name. The man who created it, Bill McKibben, 
wanted to know 30 years ago, at what point in parts per million of carbon are we in danger? So we went to Jim Hansen, who is the climate scientist who really alerted us to all of this in 1988 and, and, and is the hero of the climate movement. And he said to Hansen, at what point is it dangerous? And Hansen said, 350. If we get 350 parts per million, that's all we can deal with. And that's why he named his organization 350.org. Well, as the charts have shown you earlier, we're at 414, 415. The Earth has never been at 415 during human existence. It's very doubtful that humans can live for forever in an environment that's 415. Oh, by the way, 415 and going up. So it's not sufficient to stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere, because the CO2 we've got in the atmosphere will remain for thousands of years. We have to find ways to take CO2 out. And the, so there's, there's technology that's being developed to do that. And the idea is, again, as David touched on, is if you get this carbon deep enough into the ground, it can bond with rock in the ground and become permanently fixed and no longer a problem. So that's the sequestration part of carbon capture and sequestration. And then an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby, which is frustratingly nonpartisan from my point of view. Uh, but Citizens Climate Lobby hatched the idea of carbon fee and dividend. And um, the, way they, the way they propose it is that they would tax carbon at $15 a ton and raise that tax $10 every year. Forever. So in 20 years, it would be $215 a ton. Now, a couple of benchmarks here. A dollar a ton is a penny a gallon. $15 a ton is 15 cents a gallon. $10 a ton per year is 10 cents more a gallon per year, if you're thinking about it in terms of gas, <coughs> gas at the pump. Um, so that was their proposal. Then, in February of 2017, a bunch of Republicans who were proud Republicans, led by Secretaries Baker and Schultz, created something called Republican Climate Leadership Council. And they proposed almost the same idea as Citizens Climate Law. But the way they said it is, we, we hate taxes. We're Republicans. But we also hate markets that are broken. And this is a broken market because there are costs in here which are not being accounted for and which we're all asked to pay for later. And that's not right. And so we, as responsible Republicans, want to tax these fossil fuels to cover that social cost of carbon. But because we're Republicans, we don't want to give the government the money and let them spend the money. So we're just going to give the money back in equal shares with everybody, which is exactly Citizens Climate Lobby's um, uh, formula. Then there was another group that's formed since then called Americans for Carbon Dividends, which is hypothetically bipartisan. The thing about dividend is that it solves the problem that they haven't solved in France. Right? You've got all the people in France in the street screaming about the taxes on petrol. Why? Because the government keeps that money and spends it on things that some people, people like and some people don't. If, if you had the Climate Leadership Council formula, is $40 a ton? 
$40 a ton is 40 cents a gallon. $40 a ton, the way they did the formula, which is full shares to adults and half shares to kids, would give $2,000 a year to a family of four. $2,000 a year is 150 bucks a month. So if you did this formula, $40 a ton, you would be, everybody in the room, would be every household would be getting a check for 150 bucks a month. Would you spend that 150 bucks a month? Well, if you lived in Manhattan, you sure would. Because if you live in small spaces and you don't drive a car, you're hardly going to pay this tax at all. And if you don't own several homes and fly once a week, you're probably going to be in the 70% of the people who actually make money on the dividend. And making money on the dividend is key because the social cost of carbon is not $15 or $40. It may be $400 or $600. And the only way you're going to get it up where it needs to go is to bribe 70% of the people to keep allowing you to raise the tax. And that's what carbon fee and dividend does. In Congress now, Congressman Ted Deutsch from the other side of the state has H.R. 763, which I urge everyone to write a letter to Buchanan and whoever else to support, um, which is essentially the citizens' climate lobby formula. There is also a cap and dividend, which is used to carbon cap formula, which you put refund as dividend. There's a bill like that in Congress. There are several variations with less than complete dividends. In other words, another you can cut the baby in half. You can use half the money for dividends and half the money for climate justice. You can have any number of formulas you want. I'm in favor of full dividend because I'm in favor of the full bribe to raise the tax. <laughs> Come on, political lessons. Australia put in the carbon tax in 2012 with no dividend or no obvious refund, and within the next election, labor was thrown out and they can't get back in. But Canada passed tax and dividend for all the provinces that didn't have a carbon tax, and Trudeau got reelected. Well, why is that? Because they started mailing the quarterly dividend checks before the election. <laughs> makes a big difference, demonstrates the point. And it happens that certain Canadian provinces were exempt from the tax so they already had a plan. It happens that Quebec is in the cap and trade program of California. So this can even be done with groups getting together that aren't even in the same country. It happens British Columbia has had a carbon tax and they do it with tax swaps. That's their way. So there are a variety of of samples of how this can work right here in North America. So I, I mentioned this before about the trade-offs, uh, that what taxing provides more transparency and it's simpler to administer. Um, the question about this is why now? Because Hansen said 415 was the danger when it was not 415. Um, because the true social cost of carbon is much higher than anybody dares to suggest. Because carbon fee and dividend supports raising the tax. It would, nuclear, that my other pet, pet project is, let's stop closing nuclear plants if every time we close them, we burn more fossil fuel. This is crazy. And it's happening for me now in my local plant in Crookland, we work with the Indian Point Power Plant, provides 25% of New York's power, and the first plant's going to close this April 30th, and the second plant's going to close the following April 30th, and New York is going to emit 7 million tons of carbon that doesn't emit now because do-gooders on my side of the aisle are in favor of closing Indian Point. 
This is education that we really have to do. Um, and, that, and by the way, if we had carbon tax, Indian Point wouldn't be closing. It's closing because the owner of the plant can't make any money. If the, if the cost of fossil fuel energy were higher, then Indian Point would be making money. Um, and that's all I got. I hope you <laughs> Anyway, let's play the videotape. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sid Kitson, and I'm very sorry I can't be at a leap year look at climate change. I've spoken to David and think that the Sarasota Institute, a 21st century think tank, is a great idea. And I'm happy to participate, even if it's through video. Three years ago, when David and Tim visited Babcock Ranch, we had just sold our first home. The early buyers were truly pioneers, but we're now about to sell our 600th home. Babcock is growing fast and is home for everyone from young families, empty nesters, and people of all ages, and people very interested in climate change and environmental sustainability. David asked for me to go back and into our extensive video vault to share with you our initial vision for creating a carbon neutral town and how far we've come in making that a reality. You'll have a chance to see the 74,000 acre nature preserve then you'll get a chance to see what the vision was for Babcock Ranch, and then, of course, what it looks like today. Again, I apologize for having to speak to you via video, but I urge all of you to come down to Babcock Ranch, a 75-minute drive, to see and explore our 21st century new town. Thank you. parks and civic areas and it almost has a, a living breathing feel to it 
We wanted to be very relatable, a place that was more in scale for people. We can create gathering places for people to really enjoy and, and to hike and to walk and to really experience what Babcock Ranch was about. We want to have fun. We want them to be welcoming, to have areas where the kids can play, where people can walk. Each one of our neighborhoods will have access to a trailhead that will let them literally walk out their front door and walk into a 50-mile trail system. We're going to have a town square where we hope people will ride a bike to get there, to walk there, anything we drive their car. And in the middle of all that will be our great lawn where people will be able to gather for concerts, events. So all this is what we do to create town and, uh, and giving people the ability to, to go to places where they can gather, they can socialize, uh, and enjoy themselves. We really felt that energy was a key component. We wanted to be the first solar town in the United States. Florida Power and Light are fantastic partners. They have the same drive and determination, the same ethics, the same goals and objectives and the, and the things that they're trying to do within their organization. When you turn a light switch on during the day at Babcock Ranch, it will be powered by solar energy. And when the sun goes down at night, it'll then be powered by natural gas, making the combination of those sources. Babcock Ranch will have the cleanest form of energy of anywhere in the United States. Technology is a key uh, to uh, some of the innovative ideas that we have at Babcock Ranch. So the first thing we said to ourselves is, is we need to, to try and future-proof Babcock as much as possible. And the only way that we could think to do that was to have fiber to every home and every business, allowing us to have a minimum of a gigabyte to literally uh, anyone within the community. Telehealth within the home we think is going to be a big part of what we're doing. Autonomous vehicles are going to be a showcase for us. Everything that we're designing at Babcock Ranch, we're thinking about the environment, we're thinking about how we can do it just a little bit better. One of the things that, for example, is the homes will all be Florida Green Build approved. We're also going to have gray water be the irrigation systems for all the homes at Babcock Ranch. What really drove me was to be able to create something that would have an impact. And not just an impact today, but an impact into the future, to leave a legacy. We wanted to think about how we could treat this land, how we could create the places that we want to create so that it will be additive to the generations in the future and not take away from them. Creating a place that not only caters to what's going on today, but really is thoughtful about the future is what we're trying to do here. And that legacy is very, very important to us. so fast 
We really need to right now start looking at what we're teaching our students in school systems today and making them aware of climate change. So as David mentioned, what I'd like to share with you is um, a plan for action and really focusing on our students. Um, I have to also give a shout out to my sister because she's a huge component in the program that we're hoping to develop. Um, she is an instructional designer for the College of um, Health Professionals. Um, and she primarily focuses in research writing, and I think she's one of the most intelligent people that I know. I love her dearly, and I'm incredibly grateful to all the work that she's helped me put together. So I have to give a shout out to her. Okay, so since it's a day of graphs, I'm gonna continue with that, and I'm gonna share uh, two statistics with you. The first is a little bit more helpful in the fact that 67% of Americans are agreeing that climate change is, is happening, like we're aware of that this is an issue. Um, and 77% of um, uh, Americans believe that it needs to be addressed in our school systems today. But when we look at the PISA test, which is a test that looks at internationally how our students are doing in the areas of math, science, and English, it's rather disappointing. We fall really at the 50% uh, mark, um, which is really devastating for being one of the world leaders, and it's something that we need to address. And that's us. And I'm a teacher, and so currently I'm seeing that there's a huge problem, a huge disconnect when I'm teaching, even currently in my classes. And that's because students are wondering what are they learning and why. They feel that what they're being educated on is not relevant to them, and they're bored in school, they have technology at their fingertips, and they have information available to them at all times. And so what I'm finding is that, you know, as years go on, I've been teaching for 16 years, the disconnect is growing. And according to another study, a nationwide study, Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, a study done with high school students is um, linking 75% of these students are feeling a feeling of negativity towards our school systems today. And lastly, teachers. Uh, we want to change the mindset of teachers because 65% of teachers polled by this NPR study don't believe that climate change really relates to what they're teaching in their school system, okay, their particular topic that they're associated with. So what I'd like to do now is to share with you a video of what I did last year. I know some of you may have seen it, but I think it helps play a part in how I want to explain how we can scale this. Okay, so if you wouldn't mind. It has a lot to lose because we're missing our protective barrier of coral that was there up until the early 80s. Since then, we've gone through a number of diseases and uh, hurricanes and these things have essentially wiped out the reef track such that it no longer provides an effective breakwater against the big waves that come with the bigger storms that are now in increasing prevalence. The economy and even human lives are at stake. project for the students called the Coral Project and reach out and create partnerships that would allow our students to engage in, in research. So building the tanks was the first step in all of this. So our group was tasked with building the, uh, all the systems and all the engineering that goes into it is really incredible. So we're just, we've just been doing a lot of preparation 
like setting up the lighting system, protein skimmer, chiller, heater, and all that stuff to make sure that the water is ideal for the coral so that we can really do beneficial research. It's really important for our students to have opportunities where they can apply what they're learning in the classroom in an authentic way. Specifically, the research from Palm Beach Day is going to be contributing to a compendium of knowledge for repopulating the reefs. We are breaking all the pieces of coral up into little small parts, but they're still alive, so that when they're in smaller fragments, they grow at an accelerated rate. It's really amazing that over the last couple months, this project has taken on so many different directions. Our eighth grade classes are involved in essentially designing a new version of what is the coral tree that the Coral Restoration Foundation uses to grow staghorn and elkhorn coral. The problem right now is that their trees are made of plastic, and so our students are challenged to come up with a natural means of creating that very same system. At first, our original design was just like the Coral Restoration Foundations, and the only thing we changed was from PVC to bamboo. What we are doing is testing the water to um, make sure the solidity is a perfect range, um, so the bamboo will react the same way as it will react to the ocean. All the different facets that we're finding in this coral project have allowed a lot of our students to bring their own skill sets, their own passions to the project. We are the DRC committee, which stands for Data, Research, and Calendar Committee, to keep everyone organized. And with this project that has many moving parts, it's kind of hard to do that. So that's why we have made this committee. Social media is a huge part of the Coral Project because it's a really great way to spread the word. I think what we're doing here is really important and it's definitely gonna make a difference. So if we get this right and all of the coral grows at the rate that we're expecting it to, we could rebuild the coral colonies with a little help with the Coral Restoration Foundation and save the world. Problems naturally aren't solved through one lens, through one perspective, or through one subject, but it's always going to be an integration of different subject matter, but also different skills that all of us bring together, and that's what it means to really solve a problem. It's not done independently, it's done collaboratively, and I, that's what we're really focusing on here, and I see it, and I just, I can't wait for the rest of the year to share what, what we come up with.
So the idea is really taking on um, technology that the students have available to them and really improving information literacy, helping them navigate through technology and really taking on um, a hypothetical approach which we do to in today's society and move to world, more real world application in school systems. And I think the perfect fit for that is climate change. And you can't say it doesn't affect you because it's everywhere you are. And so in school systems, I believe that we can increase the things like creativity and innovation and things that lead to higher test scores, specifically critical thinking test scores. And so with that said, I'd like to share with you the program. So this is a program we're gonna call Authentic Education, um, excuse me, Authentic Exploration Matters. And the goal, of course, is to really connect uh, teachers uh, to, with experts and students and create what we believe is the future of education and really bringing relevant content into the classroom. I believe I focus on climate change because it's a passion of mine, but I believe that this is a model for not just climate change, but all areas of education as well. First of all, what we'd like to do is connect with teachers. And we want to provide them with a platform with resources, rich resources and lesson plans that pertain to climate change and show teachers how the next generation science standards and the standards that they use at their school system does apply. We want to create a platform for teachers so that they can share and communicate. And we want to provide them resources like Tim Rummage and David Poole's book, um, Spaceship Earth, because that's a wonderful uh, uh, start to getting the, the dialogue um, uh, started. The second thing, and I think the more challenging part for us, will be school systems. Um, I would argue that if we increase your information literacy and we engage your students, your standardized test scores will go up and you will see more critical thinking success among your students. We could also argue with schools that you will see more engagement in your faculty because you're gonna see an interconnected approach to education and a cross-curricular approach engaging your teachers as well. It was the best teaching year of my entire life and I think other teachers would feel the same when you're empowered um, to take ownership. And lastly is that college application that students have to get to at some point. And we see students today are competing with their GPA scores. But what makes our students stand out? You know, if everybody has A's now in schools, what makes you special? What is your portfolio? And we think in enabling students to be participating in something like this will shape that. And lastly, of course, is the experts. Looking at experts, specifically as I'm hearing these amazing things that are happening in Sarasota, I think you need a voice. I think you need a platform to connect in schools and show them what you're doing because it's an amazing work that we're seeing in our environmental um, sector and I think it needs to be shared with the teachers. And not only does that share information, but it gets it from going from a local to a global aspect, not just sharing with just Sarasota. I would love to know what you're doing in Orlando and bring it to my classroom and show them how this research can be applied. Also, I think this is a platform for marketing, allowing you to market your particular program and share it with, um, with school districts. So ultimately, we're looking at an opportunity here, and an opportunity is really impacted on looking at experts and getting them to share their information with schools. As I sat in the audience today, I was amazed at the stuff I was learning. Um, from, and I'm sure you feel the same way, right? You're hearing all this amazing information, and as you're sitting there and taking it in, I feel that I wish my students were here sitting with me, because I think it's so important. So I think all teachers won't necessarily jump right in and say, oh my goodness, I can do that, right? Everybody's at different levels in education, and whether you're an elementary school or a high school teacher, you might feel different. So we designed three levels of integration. The first is really research and discovery, allowing you to learn how to navigate the resources available and teach children what data is relevant and what data isn't, especially when they have YouTube and a number of different organizations at their fingertips. Second is information sharing, helping them understand the importance of scientific writing, 
And then lastly, of course, is that prototype building, you know, that artistic side, right? Getting a prototype together and putting that out. And I just want to mention that I'm a forward thinker. I think I've always been that way. My husband was laughing at me and telling me, you know, you should tell them what you used to do back in 2004. Well, in 2004, I was writing science kits for my classes in CSI because it was a big thing. And I was making all these kits. And today, there's a company out there that has a billion subscribers to the very same thing, which is funny. In 2011, I worked with this, uh, uh, the American Board of Osteopathic Medicine to develop a, a pre and post uh, survey for, to change physicians' thinking. And today it's actually a patient advocacy site. And so I think that I'm on to the next big thing. I really do. In 2019, the Coral Project shaped my life. Um, it's something that I really want to bring to teachers and to schools and to show them that they can really reform education in a way that it should be and not the way it is currently. So I searched online and I found an organization that I think has the platform that I would use similar. Um, my husband's actually a coach and he's the one that, that showed this to me. He's an athletic director, so we've got the sports and the family and the science. Uh, but this is a perfect platform. Um, it's a subscription-based platform because I know the first question for those of you who are um, investors is, you know, how's it going to make money? I want to teach kids, but I understand I have to talk about this piece. So the idea is to have a subscription plan and to make it available to uh, teachers or school districts. And of course, having a subscription plan gives you different, um, obviously, price points of students getting engaged and, and teachers. Now, obviously, the expenses, this is not my background, but from talking with people in order to develop a website, it's going to cost me around ten dollars to $15,000 to do that. And obviously, the videos that we want to have on there for teachers to bring content into their classroom. And so, what I want to prove is that this has revenue expectations. According to IES, 56.6 million students were enrolled in school from elementary, middle, and high school as of last year, along with that, 3.7 million teachers. So not as only is that a billion-dollar industry, that's 56.6 children that we can get engaged in climate change and make an impact in their future. And so with that, I just want to say thank you, and I want to encourage you, if you have any interest in helping me with this program, if you're a teacher, if you are an investor, or um, if you're an expert, I would love to hear from you. And after, uh, according to David's great suggestion, I do have business cards this time, which I didn't last. So if you're for having me here today. Thank you for all of you for taking time out of your day for this very important uh, meeting on a leap year look into climate change. Thank you in particular to the organizers, David Hole and others, uh, for having me uh, uh, share with you some of my thoughts. I'd like to talk to you today about my book, A Planet of Three Billion, and quickly cover 85,000 words, 1.2 million years in human history, and see if there's any thoughts within it that might be useful to you in your readings today. 50 years ago, we landed on the moon, and that gave us an opportunity to see our planet from space. And at that moment, because of the looks of 70% ocean and the swirly nature of our land, we coined the term the blue marble. And uh, that is one of the most iconic views we have of our planet. The other one is uh, of uh, the political borders that we have in all of the globes that we have in our classrooms and in our homes. We buy these globes because it helps educate our children about the world around them. But these globes are focused on the political borders. Which countries are bigger than the others? What countries' borders were fought in this war or the other war? But I would argue that that view of the planet is uh, unfortunately uh, skips over some of the most important aspects, which is the historic wildernesses that comprise our planet. 
These are the historic wildernesses, the ecoregions uh, from which we evolved. These are the ecoregions that provide ecosystems and goods and services that have supported the rise of our many human civilizations. And unfortunately, uh, this is not the globe that we use to raise our children and our grandchildren, but it is uh, the view that we should be raising our next generations on because they then need to understand how we have burdened our planet. This is a set of data that I will go into later in my talk, but these many colors are humans, uh, humanity's footprint on those historic ecoregions where we have deleted those ecosystem goods and services, deleted many parts of those wildernesses that have supported us as species, or further burdened them with our wide range of wastes. But first I'd like to start with how did we get here? How could we possibly have uh, burdened our planet ecologically uh, in such a profound way? And I'd like to take uh, an abbreviated version of this video from the American Museum of Natural History with 100,000 years of human history. And you'll look at 100,000 BCE where humanity uh, only had about one million uh, uh, of us as part of the species. And it took till well past 10,000 BCE uh, before organized farming and civilization allows for the growth of, growth of our population to around 170 million at 1 AD. And at 1 AD, or as I like to say, at the birth of Jesus, you already had large populations in China and in India with the introduction of the plow and the uh, introduction of organized agricultural methods and organized administrative agricultural states that could actually sustain this size of population. And that goes well before 1 AD, in some cases a couple thousand years earlier. And it's not like nothing was going on when we had 170 million people on this planet. You already had the Han Dynasty, you already had the Roman Empire doing all these amazing things and all the Roman literature that you may have learned in school. You had the Silk Road moving goods and services and talented people across all the Eurasian continent. Um, you had uh, the Mayan uh, culture over here largely separated from everything going on. The birth of Islam, uh, uh, gunpowder invented, uh, out in, in the East. Um, and still, you only had 250 million people on the planet. And it's not that population always crept up uh, in a steady basis. At around 1300, as many of you know, you actually had uh, uh, the bubonic plague sweep across Eurasia, and you had a swift decline in populations to the extent that you actually had forests regrow across Europe in many places uh, because there weren't populations there to consistently chop down trees for shelter and to f for fuel and to, to, to uh, uh, warm their food. You had a uh, spread of transatlantic trade, but around 1700, you actually had industrialization, agricultural revolutions, uh, scientific revolution, introduction of medicine, which is all great and the source of great human progress. But at some point, I think we can all agree that the slope of that curve became problematic. And I'll let you choose for yourself when you think that the number became problematic. But also remember, the slope of that curve in many ways uh, uh, characterizes an inexorable trend uh, that you are along for uh, uh, for a while. So that you may ask yourself the question, you know, at what point did we go off the rails? But I'd like you to ask a different question. How many people can the earth support? 
This book by Joel Cohen actually inspired his inaugural election, uh, lecture for the Earth Institute in the uh, mid-1990s that uh, as a young man I was present for. And this is the question that has haunted me for uh, more than two decades. How many people can the Earth support? And I would encourage you to actually ask yourself, how many people do you think the Earth can support? And more importantly, this is, I think, the question that you should be asking yourself in the morning, in the evening before you go to bed, and ask all of your friends and colleagues during the day. And weirdly, it turns out to be a great uh, starter for a conversation at parties. But one might ask, how many people can the Earth support in what sense? Uh, what is the Earth that you're talking about? So I'd like to go back to these eco-regions. And in a short video, give you a little tour because there are hundreds of these. And there's a website in my books that you can go to, Google Eco Regions 2017, and you can read about the many hundreds of them. But they are unique places where flora and fauna, singular flows of water, climate, elevation, play together to provide unique places. And when a species goes extinct, they go extinct in a specific place. There are no polar bears in the Kalahari. So it is important to understand uh, that when we burden our planet with the activities of human civilization, we're burdening specific places on the planet that have provided us those historical uh, ecological resources, those wildernesses that have sustained us. Because on top of that, uh, we have gone and created a massive human footprint. And I'd like to uh, have you reflect upon the day that you've already had. You've probably talked about your carbon footprint in many, many ways, right? Because we talked about that in the context of climate change. But our, uh, our carbon footprint is actually just a small portion of the larger human footprint that we uh, collectively have uh, foisted on top of our planet. And I think it's important to understand human footprint in, uh, in, in two categories. One is the industrialization of our global landscape, where we have created machines that mill our Earth's surface, mow our Earth's surface, cut things down on our Earth's surface every single day. And year after year, we have more of those machines and more people who are in the business of doing that to in, uh, support human progress. But we also have a process of creating a massive geography of human waste that goes to the deepest trenches of the ocean, uh, to the highest heights of our atmosphere, and to the furthest frontiers. And I think it's important to go into this in a little bit of detail, uh, partially because it's gory, um, but I'm gonna start with uh, going back to our topic for today, which is climate change, where I like to say climate change, twice as bad as you think, and only one-tenth of the problem. And after a long day talking about the vast consequences of climate change, you may find that just a little horrifying to hear me characterize it that way. But again, your carbon footprint is only a small piece of your larger human footprint. So let's explore this a little more deeply. So we'll begin again with atmospheric carbon. Uh, we can talk about those curves and how we've passed 350 parts per million. Um, but the only reason those curves are not as bad as they could be is because our oceans have absorbed so much of that carbon, leading to the acidification of, uh, of our oceans. And while we can talk about the impacts of that on our reefs, um, it's perhaps more important to understand that the acidification of our ocean is actually fundamentally changing the pH uh, for our uh, phytoplankton to live. And our oceans with our phytoplankton actually generate 80% of our planet's oxygen budget. So uh, when uh, you think about this, it's probably twice as bad as most people think, 
once you deplete all oxygen for humanity to survive on. It's not just about sea level rise and things like that. Um, but uh, this, I would argue, is just one-tenth of the larger footprint problem because it's through the chopping down of all the trees since the last glaciation of uh, 16,000 years ago um, where we've cut down nearly every tree again for uh, a, a, a place to live, for shelter, for uh, heat, and for cooking. Um, we, yes, we moved from trees then to coal and from coal then to oil, um, which has changed our landscape, our global landscape, in fundamental ways. Now on to fracking. Agriculture, uh, you saw in that spinning globe, large black uh, uh, kind of splotches across the continents um, uh, where we have engaged in intensive agriculture. Um, and I come from an agricultural family actually here in Florida. Uh, so I'm not anti-agriculture, but we must recognize that every acre of agriculture used to be a piece of historic wilderness uh, that we've cleared out in order to feed ourselves. And at some point we have exceeded uh, that as a piece that has helped us exceed our carrying capacity of our planet. Manufacturing is something we built factories all over the planet, in many cases as close to these natural resources required for the manufacturing process as possible, which has often led to many uh, factories that are now just skeletons uh, that have gone out of business after we've exhausted those resources. Uh, infrastructure, in many cases, whether you call them superhighways or uh, rail or uh, many other kinds of infrastructure have bisected, transected historic wildernesses in ways that uh, have ceased to allow uh, uh, biological transfer or even the flow of water in the ways that uh, actually sustain that historic eco-region. Um, and then urbanization. You have to understand that every city that you live in involves a lot of concrete and a lot of asphalt uh, and a lot of impermeable surfaces um, uh, that have deleted the historic uh, eco-region uh, resources that were there. Uh, but it is a double-edged sword because the more people we can fit into these urban environments, uh, the less we have to have them in less dense uh, development strategies uh, out there deleting the historic uh, ecological resources that we have. So urbanization, which is a process uh, by 2050, is likely to include 75% of our planet's population, a population that is to grow at least another 2 billion uh, by, uh, uh, by then. Um, urbanization is perhaps the most ecologically friendly strategy that we can have for development. But then I want to reflect a little more on human waste to get to those 10 things, right? Uh, climate change, twice as bad as you think, but only one-tenth of the problem. We have those ocean dead zones, which were first discovered in the 1970s, uh, where there was not enough dissolved oxygen in the Baltic Sea to sustain uh, marine life in, in certain patches. And uh, uh, once that was telegraphed out to their scientific colleagues, it was discovered that more than 400 uh, ocean dead zones exist now. Um, and that, with ocean acidification on high season, can com uh, uh, comprise one-tenth of the world's oceans uh, being incapable of sustaining marine life. There's also persistent toxicity. Um, in that spinning globe, you probably saw a bunch of purple dots. And uh, those dots are, uh, think of an EPA Superfund site, but uh, 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 all across the globe. Well, um, there's three kinds of persistent toxicity. There are heavy metals, there's radioactive materials, and then there are endocrine disruptors. Everyone here, I'm sure, is familiar with Rachel Carson's uh, watershed book, uh, Silent Spring, which helped uh, kick off the environmental awakening uh, of the mid-20th century, late 20th century. Um, but she only talked about one endocrine disruptor. 
our endocrine system in plants and animals governs our uh, development, our growth, and our ability to reproduce. And DDT, which is the one endocrine disruptor she identified, would um, uh, undermine the abil ability of many birds and reptiles to reproduce. But uh, she was only talking about one of what we know to be thousands of endocrine disruptors uh, that exist today and uh, uh, growing at an alarming rate. Um, noise pollution is something we don't like uh, to really focus on. It sounds a little weak uh, to some people, but you have to understand that biological, biological resources, or animals in particular, use sound to navigate, to reproduce, and to hunt. And when humans operate on their frequencies, it turns out they're unable, in many cases, to do what they need to do. And then ocean garbage, I think, is uh, a good way to round out these 10, where it wasn't until 1996 that we discovered five continent-sized uh, ocean uh, garbage patches. And this was an American uh, 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 captain named uh, Captain Moore. Uh, going across the Pacific and recognizes the sheer density of all of the trash. And it's been now a quarter century since then, and as humanity, we've by and large done absolutely nothing. So this human footprint on these uh, uh, eco-regions that I've discussed, these historic wildernesses, is quite profound. The red for the urban uh, development, the uh, black, the gray roads for primary roads. These aren't the secondary roads, all the roads we drive on every day, because at this scale, it would make the entire map black. You've got all of the purple for the toxic sites, the yellow um, uh, ocean dead zones. Uh, these are just five layers, not even going into the full panoply of uh, uh, humanity's long history of burdening our planet ecologically. So you might ask, how could we possibly have gotten here? How could we not have noticed? Well, it turns out we all suffer from a disease called the shifting baseline syndrome. And it's actually a syndrome uh, coined by a fisheries scientist, Daniel Pauly, in the mid-1990s. I encourage you to Google his uh, TED talk on this. But it isn't about fish. Yes, he was focused on, you know, why did grandpa used to be able to pick, uh, he would say he, he got fish this big. Right? And then over time, they were kind of smaller and smaller. Grandpa must have been crazy. Well, <laughs> Grandpa might have been crazy, but it turns out that uh, we have many instances of shifting baselines where our natural resources, the baseline that we were living with in a previous generation has fundamentally shifted. But you coming in as a younger person, um, you uh, become familiar with that baseline. And when you think about the degradation of ecological resources, you're thinking off of your baseline, not the previous more uh, rich baseline. So how did we get here? Well, uh, the person that uh, actually coined the term biodiversity, E.O. Wilson, a Harvard professor, uh, recently, uh, three years ago, did a book called Half Earth. And you know, his reflection is, you know, we, we've gotten here and we don't understand that we need at least half of those historic wildernesses, those biological resources to sustain us as a species. And while he was a biologist and not a geographer, many of his colleagues launched into try to understand geographically those places that could be brought back to 50% uh, uh, of the wilderness or the historic resources set aside from humanity. And it turns out it's quite tough. Um, whether you agree with the methodology or not, we have the red areas that are imperiled. Uh, uh, yellow could recover back to 50%. Uh, the green could reach half. And the dark green, these small spots, are actually half protected. Notice there is no color saying 100% protected because there's no place on Earth that is. So this human footprint, 
that we have on our historic wildernesses is quite profound <coughs> and far exceeds our carbon footprint, and we need to think about what to do about that. I would argue, after surveying the literature, that uh, we can actually only support 3 billion humans, the equivalent of what we had in 1950, living at kind of modern industrial uh, uh, levels of, of quality of life. Um, and I won't get into all the math and all the discussion here, uh, but um, uh, I think we need not to be asking, you know, how can we just be, uh, not, we should not just be asking how can we decarbonize, we should be asking how many people fundamentally can we support since our footprint is much larger than our carbon footprint. So what could we do? What must we do? So very quickly I'd say, obviously we need to bend that global population curve. We need to take it instead of at 7.7 .7, growing at 85 million a year, which is the equivalent of 10 New York cities added to the world population every year. We need to bend that population curve downward. And while it's a difficult thing, uh, it's a complex thing, it turns out it's quite simple in a way because we know that every place where women are empowered, educated, integrated in the workforce and have access to family planning technology, every geography where that exists, the population is below replacement value, uh, the, the fertility rate is. Uh, so that's something we need to do. We also need to reinvent how we think about economics because we've seen these breathless accounts in uh, uh, many of the newspapers, whether it's the Financial Times or in Wall Street Journal or even the Washington Post, that will say, but we must have an endless stream of people to have economic growth. And it turns out GDP is perhaps the worst measure you can have for understanding quality of life in your country. Instead, you should be focused on perhaps uh, per capita GDP, uh, productivity growth, uh, uh, per capita wealth and well-being. Um, but the way we think about economics uh, as a global society is fundamentally incapable of allowing us to navigate to a more sustainable population plateau. We also need to deindustrialize our global landscape and rewild it. As I said, you know, for instance, with factories, we have these uh, exoskeletons of capitalism's past uh, where we've done useful development for a lot of good reasons, um, but uh, it, it is no longer something that we use actively. And it turns out with the fourth uh, uh, in, uh, agricultural revolution and many of these new technologies and capabilities that are out there, we have the ability to actually sustain not only our current population level with a much smaller geographic footprint, but if we bend that curve, we can allow our planet to bounce back. But as we do that, we also have to remember that massive weight of uh, uh, human uh, waste that we have foisted on our planet and come up with novel strategies that will be massively energy intensive to possibly gather up uh, uh, all of that uh, all of that waste and, and deal with it in some way. As I always like to say, it's uh, much harder to clean up your house than it was to mess it up in the first place. We must pay down this ecological debt before it comes due. Think about the loan chart. Not that any of you have ever taken a loan from a loan chart, but when you do, you must pay it off before they break your knees or perhaps kill you. And frankly, that's the most operative metaphor I've been able to come up with. But most importantly, we must ask ourselves every moment of every day, when we wake up in the morning until we go to bed at night, and all of our friends and colleagues that we speak with, how many people do you believe that the earth can support? Because in my opinion, this constitutes the single biggest cultural blind spot that we have as a planet and as a globalist civilization to keep us from actually tackling the large issues uh, that we face together in rebalancing our species with uh, our planet's natural resources. 
So thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you today.